I'm happy you came today, and I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles with me and open them up to Nehemiah chapter 10. And we're going to read it together, so you're going to need your Bibles open. It won't be up on the screen, not this part of it at least. So if you want to find Nehemiah, there should be a Bible right in front of you. And if you want to find Nehemiah, just go right to the middle of your Bible and hang a left. You're going to run right into it before Psalms. Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. Let's stand together. We're going to read verses 30 and 31. I'm going to read it if you would follow along with me. Here's what it says in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 30 through 31. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless his word tonight. Lord, thank you, Father, for your word. And today as we look into it, we would pray, we would ask that you would bring your word to life. Lord, it's living and active. And we have great confidence in your word. This church is going to preach your word. It's going to teach your word. And that's all we're going to preach and teach. And Lord, we have a lot of confidence in your word. So we need your word to be alive today. We need your word to be alive and active in our hearts. We need your grace, Lord, to help us be the people of God that not only practice your word, but pursue holiness. So Lord, we pray for that and we ask for your help. And in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so I want to read to you something that D.L. Moody, that great evangelist, once said. And you got to hear this because this is going to get us ready for what you're about to hear from Nehemiah chapter 10. That What we just read, I'm going to unpack it for you. But this is what D.L. Moody said, and I tell you what, it, it is brief, convicting, and encouraging. Here's what he said. A holy life will make the deepest impression. Pause. I'm going to read a little bit more. Do you want your life to be significant? Do you want your life to be powerful for God's kingdom? Now, come on, you have to answer that. I'm asking you questions. This is what you do. You come to church. You interact with what the preacher's saying. Do you want to be used by God in great, great ways for his purposes? A holy life will make the deepest impression. Here's the rest of it. And here it's so profound. Lighthouses blow no horns. They just shine. If you want your life to make the deepest impression, it's got to shine. It's got to have a witness. It's got to have a testimony. Your life has got to be a lighthouse. And the world will see it. We're going to unpack that this entire sermon. Two weeks ago, we saw that there are three recommitments that the people of God are making. Now listen, they've been praying. Chapter 8, they came. They heard the word of God preached for six hours. Chapter 9, they begin praying. And they're praying in four directions. They looked up, exalting God. They looked back at their history, saw their unfaithfulness, saw the fingerprints of God's mercy. 
They looked in and saw that they're not any better than their ancestors. They sinned. They, they dropped the ball. They're irresponsible. Yet God is still merciful. And it's creating all of this confidence in their lives. God, who's been faithful in the past, is going to be faithful in the future. And they look ahead into that future. And they begin to recommit their lives to serving God. Two weeks ago... We saw, and Pastor Matthew reminded us, we saw that by God's grace, they're going to make the word of God their practice. That's what we saw two weeks ago. They're going to establish their lives on this. Listen, I don't know where you're at with the word of God. I don't know where the word of God is at in your life. But I can tell you where God wants his word to be in your life. He wants it to be right in the very center of your life. He wants it to be the foundation of your life. He wants it to be in the mind, your mind. He wants it to come out your lips. He wants it to guide your steps, your fingers, your hands. This, The word of God is powerful. Amen? Amen. And by God's grace, we will make, and many of us recommitted, we will make the word of God our practice. What we're going to look at today, however, is the second recommitment. By God's grace, we will make holiness our pursuit. So let's start with even this baseline thought. Why, why did God choose Israel? I mean, after all, Israel was not a large people. They were not a beautiful people. They were not a powerful people. Why did God choose Israel to be his People, why? What was the motive lurking, running through God's heart? Here it is, Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you, this is part of it, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do you see that? You want to know why God chose Israel? Christian, do you want to know why God chose you? He's doing the same. Church, he's doing the same. To make us a light for the nations. That the word of God, the gospel, the offer of salvation that can free lives from sin and set your life on purpose, eternal purpose. That that gospel, that that good news, that that hope of salvation would go through the church, through Israel, all over the globe to every people, every nation. Because God loves all people. And that mission, the mission of Israel, the mission of the church for us is to be that lighthouse of God's love so that his salvation will go around the earth. But here's the problem. And by the way, if you're listening attentively, I think you're going to find that we share this problem. Here's the problem. The lighthouse wasn't shining. Are you ready? This is convicting. Because Israel was no different than the people of the land. And a lot of times the light's not shining through us because we're not any different than the people of the world. Listen, if you want to be used by God, if you want to make a deep impression and to be used mightily for the kingdom of God, your life's got to be different. It's got to be peculiar. It's got to be distinct. It's got to be holy. 
I'm going to teach you a word today. Now, I don't know. I don't know if everybody is in Christ. I don't know if you've all bent your knee to Jesus and asked Him to forgive your sins, and you put your your hope in Him for eternity. But if you have, the Bible calls you, listen, a saint. You know what that word saint means? It means holy, set apart. You've been taken out of the world. You've been put into Christ. You've been taken out of the ways of the world. You've been put into the ways of the kingdom of God. You're a saint if you're a Christian. And if you're a saint, you're holy. You're the holy ones of God. And holiness is a distinction. It's... It's a distinction from the citizenship of this world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. Our citizenship as the church, as a Christian, it's in heaven. We belong to the kingdom of God, not to the ways of the world. And listen, we don't separate from non-believers. We don't form protective cocoons and insulate ourselves from the world. That's not what you do. We live among unbelievers as the fragrance of Christ. We live among the world showing the love of Jesus Christ, speaking the truth. And all the while, we're pursuing that holiness so that the light shines more brightly. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and the fear of God. But the distinctness of the of God's people it had blurred in Nehemiah's day. And now they're recommitting to it. And look what it says in verse 28. And that was all introduction. Here we go. Verse 28. We read it. Trying to get us all ready to hear the word of God. Here's what it says. They separated themselves. Verse 28. We read this two weeks ago. They separated themselves from the peoples of the lands... To the law of God. Separating is always from something to something. They separated from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. See, God's will for his people has always been that we might maintain an uncompromised testimony down the centuries and share his salvation with the nations. How do you do that? Now, here's what we're doing, we're going to do today. I'm going to share you, with you four ways from Nehemiah 10. Four ways. They're all, they're all going to be easy. They're all going to intersect your life. Four ways to make your lighthouse shine bright. Four ways to be pursuing holiness. Four ways to be making a deep impression for God's kingdom. They're all connected by the word and. So I'm going to read what I read a minute ago. We all stood up. Now listen this time with the word and. They're bridges. It's a connecting word. There's four of them. Here we go. Number one, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And it's a connection. Here's how you study the word of God. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the, on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And here's the third. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year. And here's the fourth. The exaction of every debt. Four ways. Now let me unpack them. First, our families will be set apart for God. Our families will be set apart for God. I'm going to shock some of you. I'm pretty sure I will. Do you know this world 
has a specific agenda to attack the family? Do you know that? I'm going to prove it. Here we go. Feminist author Roxanne Dunbar. She's not one of those warmongers. She is mainstream feminism. Here's what she wrote. Ultimately, we want to destroy the three pillars of class and caste society, the family, private property, and the state. They want to attack the family. Lesbian journalist Masha Gessen, here's what she wrote. The institution of marriage should not exist. Fighting for gay marriage generally involves lying about what we are going to do with marriage when we get there. In other words, when we get our agenda pushed through, we're not telling the truth of what we're ultimately going to do. Here it is. We lie that the institution, because we lie that the institution of marriage is not going to change. That's a lie. They're trying to destroy marriage. They're trying to destroy the family. It's under attack. The marriage, the family, forms the foundation of the nation. Billy Graham said it right. The home is the basic unit of society and a nation is only as strong as her homes. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land. Man, I want to speak to you for a minute. Fathers specifically. It was the duty, in Nehemiah's life, it was the duty of the father. It was like this virtually all through the word of God, the Old Testament. It was the duty of the father to secure a wife for your son and a husband for your daughter. It was the duty of the father to do that. And here we've got in Nehemiah 10 verse 30, they're recommitting. They're not going to mix their families with the people of the world. And one of the reasons for this is that God's people would maintain, by not mixing them, would maintain an uncompromising testimony and share the message of salvation to the nations. Listen, if you mix your families, the light in your lighthouse begins to dim. Israel was no less a missionary people than we are. It was vital that their message would be uncorrupted by the way that they lived their lives. Mixing their marriages dilutes the devotion to the Lord in that family. The witness to the nations begins to be destroyed. And in the ancient world at that time, now listen, you're you're alive now in 445 BC. That was when Nehemiah lived. All right, you're alive back then, and you're hearing this, you're making this recommitment, and this is what your world was like at that time when two people made a marriage agreement. Listen, they normally confirmed their commitment. They, they had the wedding ceremony in the presence of their gods. They brought figurines, they brought idols of their gods to the weddings, And they gave each other, these are wedding gifts, they gave each other idols. And they placed those idols in a prominent place in their homes. Nothing, nothing can be allowed to corrupt their love and devotion to God. And serving as witnesses to the end of the earth. They're recommitting, we will not mix, we will not marry the peoples of the lands. 
The people that are not believers in God. See, the Lord is concerned with the purity of our faith and the holiness of our lives. Listen, why did they not intermarry? You, you, need, you do need to understand this. It's not an ethical reason, or an ethnic reason, rather. It's an ethical one. It's not a race reason. It's not the color of a skin reason. It's for spiritual loyalty. It's for doctrinal purity. It's for devotion to Yahweh. It's not that Israel was better than everybody else. It's not that God said you're superior. Don't marry inferior people. That's not what he was saying. There's no ethnicity. There's no prejudice. This is an ethical command. They were God's people. And the people of the land, the people of the world, were not. And the two cannot be joined at the deepest level. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. And you may be married to an unbeliever. And by the way, if you're married to an unbeliever, you're going to know what I'm saying. You cannot gain intimacy at the very core of who you are. There's not anything more profoundly intimate than two married believers existing in worship before their God. An unbeliever married to a believer cannot get to that level of intimacy. And it's why scripture is clear. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? If you're going to be a lighthouse, you're going to diminish the light if you start to marry unbelievers. Pursuing holiness in the family. Friends, listen, it requires faith. Marrying, you know why they, you know why they arranged marriages? Do you know what was going on behind a lot of this? It was to form alliances. It was to secure business partnerships. It was to grant a position of power. If you go to chapter 13 of Nehemiah, you get to see two of their greatest enemies, Tobiah and Sambalat. They both had their children intermarry into priests of Israel. It was to find a way in to influence Israel. Find a way in to influence God's people and to have control. To refuse to marry their daughters to people of the land. You know what it did? It forfeited wealth. It forfeited security. But would they trust their God to provide both? And it's a faith issue today. Will God provide a person for me that will love me if I hold the biblical standards? As a youth pastor, I heard that time after time. I still hear it. And the answer is, God will provide. And those of you who are single, listen to me, trust God. Do not compromise. Hold fast to biblical convictions. God will give you all you need for your satisfaction. And your message and your witness will thrive like a lighthouse to the world. But there's another part of this recommitment. There's four parts of this recommitment to pursue holiness. The first one, we're going to keep our families pure. The second one, our calendars will be set apart for God. Now listen, I'm, I've told you all four of these. You're going to intersect with them. They're going to connect with you. The first one is your whole family running after God. 
Is your marriage, both partners in the marriage, are you both running after God? If you're married to somebody that's not a believer, listen, you ought to be getting a prayer team around you. You ought to be getting people praying that God will bring grace into your spouse's life and bring them to salvation. If you have children that are not walking with the Lord, grab prayer people, bring them around you. Pray, make it your number one prayer and get people praying with you. And preach the gospel to them. Live the gospel. Be a lighthouse in your family. But the second one was that our calendars will be set apart for God. Verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. They say a lot can be learned about who and what we love by looking at our calendars. See, God made seven days in every week. And he told his people to set one of those days apart from the rest. He did it for four reasons. Now, you listening? Four reasons. You got to hear these. If you're taking notes, I'm going to encourage you to put them down. Number one, that the people of God might honor him. A day of special honor for God, distinct from the rest A day devoted to worshiping, serving God, number one. Number two, that they would enjoy physical rest on that day. We don't have an infinite and exhaustible supply of energy. We need rest. This is a day to rest. This is a gift. Number three, a day to serve people. A day to help people. I'm going to show you that in a minute. And number four, a day to declare the truth to non-believers. You do that when you take a day in your life and unlike the world, you set it apart exclusively for God. You're a lighthouse to the world. When Israel was in Egypt, they worked seven days a week. Did you know that? A lot of people don't know that. They didn't have a day off. There was no Sabbath. When they were slaves in Egypt, they worked every day of the week. In fact, the entire world worked every day of the week. There was no such thing as a weekend. There was no such thing as one day per week off. They didn't get vacation. They didn't get sick days and personal days and time to have leave when you have babies. They worked and they worked and they worked. And so God gives to Israel alone. Listen, it was exclusive for Israel. No other nation on the planet was given this gift. He gave Israel the Sabbath. And the whole household was given that day. Listen, children, servants, animals, foreigners that were visiting Even so that even those who were not part of Israel might taste and experience the gift of the Sabbath and go back and tell their nations about the gift-giving God of Israel. It was an ancient blue law. You closed the shops on, on Sundays like we do in some states, except that day was Saturday. It was a day where by focusing on God, they could be a witness to all the other nations because Israel wouldn't allow people in to trade. They would not trade. They would not do business on that day. All the nations were banned from that when they visited Jerusalem. They were a lighthouse to the world. And all the nations would know that Israel's allegiance to God, it was greater than their love for money. It was greater than domestic and social concerns. 
In fact, the Sabbath was one of the main ways Israel pursued holiness, yet they repeatedly let it go. They would, they would stop honoring God. They would forfeit His rest. They would neglect helping others. They would lose their witness. Their lighthouse would dim because they would let go of the Sabbath. So it's hardly surprising that one of the very first recommitments they make is that recommitment back to honoring God on the Sabbath. But what about us today? The Sabbath command, friends, was fulfilled in Christ. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. Before the sun gets up over that horizon, that light that it's sending out will create a shadow. I know because I hunt in the early mornings and I'll be, the sun's not up yet and I can already start to begin to see a shadow forming. And then all of a sudden that, sh- that sun rises and you get to see it. Well, that's what it means. That Jesus hasn't risen on the planet yet. It was a shadow. The Sabbath was a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see, the Sabbath was to move their eyes forward to the Messiah who would give them spiritual rest. It was a shadow, it was insubstantial evidence that something greater was coming, eternal rest in Christ. And knowing it was fulfilled in Christ, listen, this is why the early church moved from Saturday to the day that Jesus Christ arose from the grave, Sunday, that was their first day of the week. We kind of look at Mondays as being the first day of the week. To the early church, it was a Sunday. So they moved from the Old Testament law of works, Sabbath keeping, to the New Testament covenant of grace, Lord's Day, and they began to worship God on that day. They began to do the same Four things that they were always doing. They were honoring God. They were resting. They were serving. They were helping others. And they were being a witness to the world. Our families will be set apart for God. Our calendars will be set apart for God. And then you get to the third one. Our possessions will be set apart for God. So let's take just a brief time out. Because I'm really flying through this. There's so much. I wish I did this in two weeks. But some of you who are single, you might be in a relationship, in a dating relationship. You might know what we do as parents. We teach our kids. 18, 16, 14, and 7. We're even starting to teach Andy. I believe you start teaching your principles when they're young. And we're teaching our children... You don't marry an unbeliever. Some of the most painful counseling that I have ever done has been with a mixed marriage. It is incredibly painful. You don't marry an unbeliever. And you don't date unbelievers. You be friends with them. You're a lighthouse. You bring the gospel of grace through friendship, but you don't date unbelievers and you don't marry them. Somebody might be saying, but I love this person. And I always ask them, well, is that person walking with the Lord? Is there evidence clearly that they are in Christ and Christ is in them? Well, I think they believe, listen, the demons believe, James says, and they shudder. You don't want to date a demon. 
There's got to be clear evidence. There ought to be a clear testimony in the person you're dating. Don't waste your time. Honor God and he will honor you. How about your calendars? A few weeks ago, I met somebody at the gym who was telling me about three jobs that he's working. I said, wow, you don't really get a lot of chance to rest. He says, you know what? When I'm resting, I'm not making money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Listen, is there a rest cycle in your life where you honor God? Where you physically rest? Where you have inordinate time to serve people that you normally don't during the week? And that you are a lighthouse and a witness to the world? Because a lot of the world, when they get their day off, it's all about them. The Christian, they get that day off, it's about others as well. How about your possessions? Our possessions will be set apart for God. When our lives are established on God's word, that was recommitment number one, our desires change. I just had breakfast this last week with a a man that I'm getting to know. Man, I love this guy. He is so struggling. Pastor Tim, I can't get over these issues in my life. I can't get past these problems. I said, are you in the word of God? No. Listen, you get in the Word of God, the Word of God gets in you. It begins to change your desires. D.L. Moody once said it this way. He was preaching to a bunch of people. He took a glass, and he empty glass, and he, he held it up to the people. He said, listen, how do I get all the air out of that glass? How do I get all the junk out of my heart? And somebody from the crowd said, well, you put a a suction on there and you suck the air out. And he says, well, that'll create a vacuum and eventually shatter the glass. He says, I'll show you how you get that junk out of your heart. The same way you get the air out of the glass. And he took a pitcher of water that symbolizes the word of God. And he began to fill it and fill it and fill it. And he says, there, now the water's at the rim. There's no more air. Listen, if you want your life to change, then let the word of God get in you and believe it and move after it. Aggressively pursue God's word. It will change your desires. And when your desires change, your behavior changes. Your your minds change. But the relentless pursuit of more. And we're talking about possessions. The relentless pursuit of more. The worry that God will not provide Listen, when the word of God gets into your heart, you stop worrying. Because worrying is like a rocking chair, one old preacher said. There's a lot of motion, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Worrying is destructive to your life. You start to put the word of God in. He increases your faith. You begin to realize that he will give you everything you need to do all that he's asking you to do. And so the people recommitted to trusting God with their possessions. Here's what they said. We will forego the crops of the seventh year. See, every seventh year, Israel was to give the land a rest. Why? Four reasons again. Here's the first. To remember that the land didn't belong to them. The land belongs to God. He's the owner. The land is mine, Leviticus 25, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, I'm letting you squat on the land. You have squatter's rights. I'm giving it to you to possess only as a manager and a steward. The cars that we have, the homes that we have, the possessions that we have, they all belong to God. He says, I'm the owner of everything. He's the owner of all creation. And we Christians, we are managers. We've been entrusted with caring for what belongs to God. 
But number two, second, it's in order to care for God's property. The land's got to rest regularly. It's got to recover. If you've got short-term gain at the, at the cost of long-term desolation, it's not acceptable to the land's owner, to God. God cares for his creation. We've got to, above all people, Christians, we've got to care as well. That's why we ought to recycle. That's why we ought to preserve resources. That's why we ought to be concerned with pollution. That's why water c- contamination is our, they're important issues. And they've got to flow out of our stewardship responsibilities, listen, without elevating creation over the creator. You worship the creator, you manage the creator's resources. Third, it's to let the land rest, letting the land rest on the seventh year. Listen, it expresses love for people. Here's what it says in Exodus. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. Why? That the poor of your people may eat. It's receding during that dormant year. Some of the produce is growing on its own. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. God cares for animals. You shall do likewise with your vineyard, with your olive orchard. Listen, don't farm that field on the seventh year because that is, that is land that is to produce receding crops for animals and poor people. There's nothing in scripture that suggests that every farmer let all the acres of his land lie fallow on the same year. He, they probably rotated their lands, likely. But during the dormant years, there was a certain amount of produce that would be regrowing. Listen, it was for the poor. It was for the animals. God cares for all creation. And God expresses his love through the Sabbath land rest. Listen, there was no other nation on the planet at that time that rested their fields. They were a lighthouse. They were the peculiar, holy, set-apart people of God. And they were making a great impression with the nations because this is the way the people of God live. But there's a fourth reason in obeying this command. And in it, Israel was expressing their faith in God. Listen, can you imagine, you're a farmer, and almost every one of us in here are farmers. You're 445 B.C., you live in Nehemiah's day. And we're an agrarian, agricultural, farming society. And you've got God saying, listen, on your seventh year, I want you to let your lands rest. And whether you're rotating them or doing it all at one time, it doesn't matter. You're going to forfeit money. How would they live when they let their fields rest? Would they have enough food? Obeying God, friends, means you trust God. That God is always faithful without exception. Did you hear that? Listen, it's always about faith. It's always about faith. If you're going to obey God, you do it through faith. And when you obey God, you've got to believe that God is always faithful without exception. Here's what he says in Leviticus 25. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit. You will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, listen, here's what I think I'd be saying. 
Well, shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Well, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. See, our witness to the world is built on our faith-filled obedience. And when we faithfully obey God as the people of God, living as managers, not owners of the possessions that we have, listen, that faith beacons like a lighthouse. And the nations will know that we are the holy people of God. So our families will be set apart. Our calendars will be set apart. Our possessions will be set apart for God. And finally, our relationships will be set apart for God. The fourth part of their recommitment, look what it says, verse 31. And we will forego the exaction of every debt. What does that mean? People always matter more than things to God. Did you hear that? People always matter more than things to God. And every Christian has to have that same attitude. Our attitudes need to be this. People are more important than things. And debt in Israel, was not often due like it is to us, mismanagement of money and frivolous spending. It's not always why we get debt, but that's the majority of the reasons. Back then, 445 B.C., you're there, you're alive then. Debt was usually, listen, here's why they're in debt, almost always. It's because somebody died. The primary wage earner died. The collapse of a family business or a condition such as drought, hail, or pestilence happened to your farm and you have no crops to sell at the market. And when that happened, then deprived people had to borrow money and when you borrow money from loaners, you had to repay it. Did you know that a Jew could loan money to a Gentile with interest? But to another Jew, they were forbidden to exact interest. It was the law of God. When the money, though, could not be repaid, here's the worst part of it, they would be compelled to sell themselves as slaves. I'm a landowner. I've got my four acres of land that I've got to plow, seed, pray that it grows and harvest, and animals to take care of. Listen, I'm a landowner. I had a bad year last year. I've got to take a loan from you and you're making me repay it as you should, but I can't repay it. I've got four kids. One of them I'm going to have to sell as a slave. Your slave. And now that child becomes your child and your property. No longer my child, your child and your property. So God created... A distinct law that was only among Israel. No other nation had this law. Here it is. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor, you who I've borrowed money from, shall release 
The child that I lent to you shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Well, that's talking about money. Let me go to Exodus 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. Listen, if I borrow money from you in the seventh year, you are to forgive the debt. If you've got one of my kids as your slaves in the seventh year, I get that kid back this was a law of grace distinct peculiar to God's people and again we see that if you're going to recommit to obey God in this it's going to require faith monies were lost servants were lost and we can bring this into our day as well let me give you two of them Friends, you'll know this if you've been in debt or are in debt. It is a crippling burden. And it's a perfect metaphor for enslavement to sin, which cannot be earned out from under it. Debt is a metaphor for sin. Debt is a metaphor for slavery. The Bible says it is. God moved, however, in my own life in this area. We had gotten into debt years ago. By the way, you're going to hear another story of this fantastic testimony in two weeks. But we, in our life, we had gotten into debt a couple years ago. Or actually, this is about ten years ago. And we tried to keep repaying it. We were making the payments to the bank, but we couldn't get ahead on the payments. The interest was so great that we were just virtually making it nowhere. We prayed and prayed, Lord, how do we get out of this debt? We realized now what it was. It's slavery. It was the wrong decision to make. We began to consolidate resources. We began to buckle down with our spending. We began to pray, Lord, we need to get out of this slavery and we don't know how to do it. We don't really tell people that, right? How many people have you told, well, we're in a lot of debt? It's usually a lot of shame. We didn't tell people that either. All of a sudden, a family in the church came up to us and said, you know what? The Lord has put it on our hearts to financially help you If you're in debt, and we said we are, and we told them how much, and it was horribly humiliating to say it. And they say, you know what? The Lord will provide for us everything we need to provide for you. And they wrote a check out right there and gave it to us, and we got out of debt. And we hate debt today. Listen, you bring these principles into our modern day living. Debt is a crippling burden but there's another kind of debt that we put people in and we've got to deal with it it's unforgiveness let me ask you to be honest is there any face that comes to your mind when i ask you is there anybody that you've not forgiven listen you be honest between you and god i'm not going to ask you who it is is there any face that comes to mind when i ask you is there anybody that you've not forgiven And you may answer yes, and, and you might tell me if we were privately together, you might say, well, Pastor Tim, I'm waiting for that person to ask for forgiveness. But the principle of the seventh year is this. You've got to let go of the debt, even when they don't ask. You can do it and you must do it by the grace of God. You let go of all debt by canceling it. You forgive that person. You drop the charges even when it's still owed to you. 
See, listen, this was the sixth year. They even had a problem back in Nehemiah's day. People didn't want to loan money on the sixth year because the seventh year was coming and God had to deal with that. Listen, don't hold back loaning from those who are in need just because the year of release is coming. You trust me. You have faith in me. I'll work. I'll provide. You be my peculiar lighthouse, people of God. And they did. You'll discover that by forgiving according to God's principles, you free both yourself and the one who has wronged you. See, the people of Nehemiah's day were recommitting to pursue, listen, by God's grace, holiness. And they would be different from the people of the land. And they would have a powerful lighthouse Witness of God's salvation. But when we're not different from the world, we've got nothing they want to hear. So will you set apart your families for God? Parents, training your children in righteousness, starting with their young, teaching them even adult things like who you ought to marry and who you ought not to marry. And fathers, tell your little girls... That one day, your father in heaven and your daddy and you, we're going to get together and we're going to choose who you're going to marry because you'd marry by choice. You don't fall in love, you choose who you're going to love. If you fall in love, you can fall out. And will you set apart your calendar for God, learning to have a rhythm of day that is set apart so that you can honor God and come to church and not just put your time in, but serve people and rest and be a witness to the world who does not live for Christ on that day of the week. And will you set apart your possessions, realizing that God owns everything, you're the steward, you're the manager. And will you set apart your relationships, even if it asks, God asks you to release a bondage of debt. By forgiving. That's the holy people of God. Let's pray for his help, shall we? Let's pray.